0: Jump to question. This is for you and for other people. When someone gives you a statement, be curious. Like, oh, what a rough commute to work today. Oh, what made it tough? How was your vacation? Good. What made it good? Like, jump to question. As you're engaging with people, make it a habit to be more curious about them and also more curious about yourself. So, if you wake up in the morning, you're like, I didn't have enough sleep. Instead of, oh, this day's gonna be awful. Be like, huh, what would have been enough? Or How many days in a row have I felt this way? Can you jump to question inside before evaluation, judgment, statement?
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Leave, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnas. Our guest today is a former corporate and securities attorney and the current founder and CEO of the Practice Lab, an organization that helps high performance companies cultivate human centered businesses and practices. She is also a registered psychotherapist and certified co active professional coach who provides support for organizations and individuals looking to understand and better integrate mental health and performance. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Kara Hardin. Kara, welcome to the show. I'm humbled and so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I know this will be uh, a great question for you since you're in the mental health field. What is your favorite thing that happened so far today?
0: I love that you asked this question and I knew you were going to ask it. (laughs) And so I tried purposely to not overprepare because it's a moment for us to practice. Oftentimes when we think of gratitude and gratitude practices, we go to like, our health, our happiness, the stability we have in our lives. And all of that's true. And I don't take any of it for granted. And in a moment when I am feeling nervous to be on a podcast with someone who I respect and admire, the more helpful practice is to be as specific and prolific in your gratitude, as present oriented as we can. And so in this moment, I am grateful for you, your effort, your time, your attention, I'm also profoundly humbled and grateful for anyone whose ears are hearing my voice, especially over the past three years. I really hold that time, energy, and attention are our most precious resources. To all of the listeners right now, thank you. I'm grateful for your time, attention, and energy.
1: That is so beautifully put. And I would also like to take this moment to thank the listeners. You're absolutely
0: right. This is humbling. And Had I prepared, so this is the edge that I sit at all the time. So I sit at the intersection of mental health and high performance and I work with people, individuals and organizations who are extremely successful at what they do and oftentimes feel anxious, inadequate, lonely and disconnected from what matters to them. I call these people strivers. And one of the challenges strivers face is that we want to do everything excellently. And so we prepare for in advance. We make lists. We have to do's in preparation for this podcast. I listened to as many episodes as I could. So I knew you were asking that question. And the striver in me was like, "All right. You want people to listen. You want nail this out of the park. This podcast is going to go viral. Come up with a perfect gratitude. And the therapist, the CEO, the woman who works on her relationship with work had to reel in and go, no, no, no. Like, you just have to be present. Yeah. And you can't prepare what you're grateful for because you know what the research is around that. And so it's something that when I dialed back my striver, the part of me that needed to be perfect, and I just practiced, and this is the practice that I'm always doing being present with you, that an answer that was organic and authentic and genuine not only showed up, but was resonant. And how do we hold the dynamic of not trying so hard and getting better results than
1: we could have imagined? I love that. And it's funny because it's a very similar to how I approach these podcasts. There are certain times where guests will come in and they're very scripted. They have like a screen with their notes. And I always have to tell them, put that away. This is an organic yeah. conversation. We're friends. We're having tea together. And I find that when that script is put away, that's when some of the best episodes come out of this. So I 100% agree with you. And what a great message to start this episode.
0: So... It's so interesting. One of the things I love about podcasting, and I got this idea from Ezra Klein, is that it's a medium where you're allowed to be thinking and making mistakes in progress. Like you're allowed to present ideas that are unfinished. One thing that I'm realizing as I'm growing sort of my presence on at Practice with Kara and in my newsletter and in my work is there's a finite get it rightness about content that is online and singular that doesn't allow us to make mistakes to change your ideas, to be learning. It's like you have to show up as an expert and complete. And so when you invite me into conversation in this way, especially this podcasting way, it allows us and the people joining listening, to organically try ideas on. Like we can imagine we're at a store and we're looking and we're like, oh, like, am I in a crop top kind of mood? Can I Can I try it on and realize like, oh, I look so cute. Yes, I am in that mood, or not today. Like mm-hmm. there are places where we can grow into parts of ourselves in conversation that we cannot when it's just a post. And so I really appreciate, it. I think that's what creates the authenticity that you were talking about.
1: What type of advice would you give to someone who is, you know, a striver who does fear not coming across as perfect? What would you say to them to empower them to explore that more? So it's
0: so interesting. Many thoughts at once. The first is the heart of my thinking on strivers is you are the expert on you. And so I'm standing here and saying, like, I'm going to give you eight ideas, for example, to empower you and step into your excellence. And before you put on any of them, before you crop top that, you need to put in your rate. Am I okay with how I am? And I don't mean in a singular monolithic way. I mean, in this moment, do I want to practice something different? Do I want to try something new? There's a host of research done by Brene Brown, which speaks to vulnerability and authenticity and the need to really show up as you are to connect with other people and to find joy and fulfillment in life. I would orient around as like a data point as you explore your own expertise on why it might be helpful to try exercising something other than perfection. Because perfection can be really limiting. It can drive people away. It might be the best tool you have right now in order to survive in your environment. So the very, very first thing is you are the expert on you. And then right next to that is this idea that how you are doing things right now makes sense. As in, there's a reason why you feel compelled to show up flawlessly. It may be that you are in an industry where your intersections are already... Questioned and challenged and microaggressed and subtly excluded. It may be that you are unsure. It may be that you're profoundly sure and you're just right and you want to present that way. And so it's knowing that you make sense. So you are the expert on you. You make sense for showing up that way. And then this is the third bucket. And what would it feel like? What is it in you that's listening to Seagal's question and going, Yeah, I want to do that. I want to be a little bit different. What's that part of you? And Like, can you ask that part more questions? For example, what would feel good about that? What's my intuition about that? Why am I not doing that? Not in a judgy way, but in curious. Well, what's holding you back? Like, if you see that crop top across the store and you're like, yes, world, I love crop tops and you're really excited about it, but you've never worn one. What about it is scary? I might think to myself, well, I'm not like I grew up in the 90s when like Barbie was all over TV and you would like watch Corey and Topanga on whatever that show was called. And Topanga would be like, I can't eat pizza. Like diet culture was real. So I am a mom with two young kids. My body is beautiful and it's round. And so if I look at that crop top, am I saying, oh, I can't wear that because I'm not beautiful? Oh, huh. And so if we take that to perfectionism, oh, I can't show my flaws. My content has to be perfect. I have to show up in this way because why? And do you accept that reasoning? Are you aligned with that reasoning? Is it systemic? Is it oppressive? Is it fulfilling? Not all of us have like 8,000 hours to do these deep existential diets in who we are. And so if you're listening and you just want to be empowered, what I would say is focus on that third part. What in you is curious about change? And what's a tiny step that feels comfortable? Maybe it's including a typo. Maybe it's like not rereading an email for the fifth time. Maybe it's doing what I did recently on social right now. I'm doing 30 days and 30 ways to shift a relationship to work. And I missed it day. It's not 30 days. It's going to be 29 out of 30. And you know what? I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Was I profoundly uncomfortable in my stomach? Yes. What are they going to say? This person's talking about work and I'm not even working. And then I remembered. Oh, that's the whole point.
1: That was absolutely great. It made me think about myself. and uh, And I assume other people feel the same way is that where the perfectionism of yourself has helped you in many ways excel also is creating something that is not good for you in another area of your life, right? So in the sense of like the posts, let's say, I'll use that as the example. If you're posting every day for 30 days, you know that it's going to create X result. However, if you're also stressing so much every single day that you're not able to do other things that are aligned with your values, like spend more time with my kids or relax or do all those things, then it's not good for you also. And I think you actually have talked about this paradox, right, between Mm -hmm. doing something really well and achieving success and it also being really detrimental to you at the same time. That's such an important thing to think about. And I love this idea of saying it's just as important to look at why it's hurting you and ask those questions as it is to be proud of how it's doing well for you? A hundred percent. And I think about a couple
0: of things as you're answering. The first is there's this tendency in the well being space to offer practices and tools and tips because, like, people want help. The reality that I have sat with in myself and in my work with other people and organizations is. Our systems demand us to show up a certain way in order to be successful. Like I can't look at a first year associate and say, turn off your email, turn off your email at five o'clock. It's going to be great. Like I, I can't, even though I practice a tech Shabbat every week, like I can't tell them that. And so we set them up to fail when we don't acknowledge the part that's like, no, you're successful because you're available. And we also set them up to burn out and fail when we don't look at the part that says, and here's the cost of that. Yes. You know, I read this somewhere. The last name is Hanson. He talks about ruthless priorities and choices being painful. And as adults navigating the world of work, one of the biggest misconceptions is that we can just time manage ourselves towards success and completion. Like, if only I could manage my schedule better, I would be able to meditate and have all my readings and do my emails. I just need to like time manage. I need to do like if box zero or whatever it is. When the reality is, In order to have the life I want, I will not be able to do everything I want. I have to manage my time so acutely that I say no to things. And there are consequences, social, emotional, psychological. So I best know why I'm making that choice and how important it is to me so that I can handle the dichotomy. Like when I say to an associate, you can't log out at five, it's true. But what days will you? Is it going to be your wedding? If you choose to get married, is it going to be bar mitzvah? Is it going to be just because it's Thursday night with your friends? Is it going to be every night? And it is going to be every night. Don't work in New York. Like there are spaces for all of us and our programming is success looks like X. But the reality is success is the crafting of choices again and again in every moment, knowing that we could be successful in one way. And the cost of that success exists over here. So what else is true? And what else do we want to be true? And that's where we work. So you could think about it for the linear thinkers on three levels. The top level is here are the things that happen in your everyday life. Here's the job. Here's the demand. Here's the expectation. Here's the systems, like the assumptions that exist over top of all of those. And then number two is your emotional response. How does it impact you? How does knowing that like being available every day, all day, every day, like what does that do for you? I know some people where they're like, I don't mind. I like being engaged. I know other people like I was someone who was like, this is eroding my soul. Like, I'm not capable of this kind of demand or like access to me. Emotional reaction. And a lot of interventions or programs exist at levels one and two. They tell you how to structure your work or how to manage the feelings. And what you and I are talking about is actually a third level, which is how do we relate to ourselves and our work as levels one and two are happening? It's the story we tell ourselves. It's the compassion we have, the curiosity we have. And this level three is the work I think everybody does all the time, especially leaders. How do we engage and talk to ourselves as we're working? So you choose to go in at five o'clock. You know it erodes your soul. Are you saying this is it? I'm stuck here. This is all I ever have to do. Or are you saying, gosh, this was my choice because of this and this. I'm doing this because of this and this. I will do it for this long at this cadence. And here's what my boundary is. Like, that is the work. And we are so busy in our world running meeting to meeting to meeting. And also, we haven't been trained to actually live in that third level and examine more closely.
1: I know for myself, anyway, I try to do that as much as I possibly can because I am trying to listen to that piece of me that is nudging me to tell me that I'm not aligning with my values. And I think that everyone has that red flag. Everyone has that like internal alarm. I just don't know that everyone knows that it's there or what it means. So are there specific ways in which people can identify moments in which their mind, their body, their heart is telling them, hey, I need you to pause and do these reflections now because something's off about this behavior or about what I'm doing. Well, I'm curious what your ways are. Yeah. No, it's a great (laughs) question. (laughs) There is like a like an actual physical feeling for me. It's usually like a tightening in my chest. I've tried to become a lot more aware when that happens and say, okay, like why am I feeling this way? I do a process of elimination. Is it this? No. That doesn't make it go away. Is it this? No. And I actually Problem solve until I get to that point where I'm like, oh, here's the issue. Now I need to start becoming curious. There are other times where it's not so physical, but my mind starts to race, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, you just made like eight thousand assumptions about what's going on in this situation, and that is not reality, or it might not be the reality. Take a step back and ask why your mind's racing right now. And so there is that indication for me as well. And then the third indication for me is all of a sudden, like a week has gone by and I have not taken a moment to even process like what life has looked like where you're talking to people and you're like, I don't know, it's just been crazy. This month has gone by and I don't even realize it. That yeah. is an indicator yeah. for me as well. Those are
0: all so telling. They're really aligned with a lot of what I see. And I want to like take tracing paper over what you just said and add a couple of things and you accept reject. So one of the things that I think of is in working with people with developmental trauma, I think of the event that happened, how they experienced it and the effects that linger in their body. So, for example, if you and we're getting really therapist now, but if you growing up as a child, like you learned differently than other kids and your parents really valued academia, like. You trying was never going to be enough in the traditional academic system. And so there could be some children that experience that event as I'm not enough and I can't learn and I will never be enough. So it's actually not worth it for me to engage and I will underachieve as an effect of that. You know, trauma, we often think of it as like this really big, like a car accident. It can also be like low level cumulative things that happen over time. So in my example of an under Achiever, they could be listening right now and thinking, well, I don't know what I want. I don't know who I am. I just know that, like, I'm not smart. Or it could be an overachiever, someone that was like, oh, it's important for me to be valuable to get the best grades. So I'm going to get like the top grades. Two people get that. This is what's valuable. And they succeed and they succeed and they succeed to the point where they're 40 and it's a pandemic and they have children at home. And for the first time in their life, they're failing and they don't have the wiring to know that like, it's okay to fail. The other piece of trauma that shows up here that I just want to name is when our bodies are overwhelmed like that, sometimes the response is to downregulate, And what that looks like is distancing your body from the present. So you don't really want to be there. And so it makes sense to me, like when you say like you lose time, when we're dissociated, we lose time, we lose access to what's happening inside of us. So like when you're able to be like, my stomach gets sore, I get upset. These are the things I notice. You're attuned to your body. Your body is a safe place to go when you're feeling like you need to know yourself. There is a whole host of people that are working, especially in the legal profession, who don't go into their bodies and are successful because they don't sleep, they don't eat, they don't pay attention to the chronic signs. And so it's to really normalize. If you were listening to Seagull Dancer and you were thinking like, That is so out of the realm of my possibility. Remember, you're the expert on you. It feels like too much to look inside in the ways, because that's what I would recommend to anyone who feels comfortable in their body. I would look for physical sensations. I would notice when you're losing time. The last one you had is like I would go through a process of elimination. Those are the three big ones that I would do. If you can't get there right away, I would start with identifying your preferences. So do you prefer hot or cold? Do you like summer, spring, fall, or winter? And when I say fall, do you like fall or do you like the word autumn? And do you like dusk or dawn? Like these really simple questions. In your day, I would just start noticing where you prefer to be. And then from there, it's a whole other conversation. But the first idea is to just start noticing, especially if you have experiences where you have been invalidated, unseen, unhelped, and not cared for, Developing a relationship with yourself where you get to take up space, you get to feel seen and like you matter. It starts with just knowing what you
1: like. And how would you recommend people even doing that? I know you said ask yourself these questions, but are there Mm -hmm. other ways in which people can learn that about themselves?
0: For sure. So I tend to be quite biased and I think everyone should have a therapist. Everyone should have a therapist, but it's caveated by it has to be the right therapist for you. And The right therapist for you when you're 12 is different than when you're 20, is different than when you're 40, is different than when you're 60. Like we are constantly evolving. And so you want to find someone, I'm going to give another analogy. When you go to get your hair cut, if you are lucky enough to get your hair cut by someone who you walk in and they cut your hair and you leave and you're like, this is me. Like they have seen the spirit of my hair. (laughs) They have seen my face and I love it. That's how you want to feel. And it's not that you don't talk about hard things. It's not that everything that they say to you Is yes, you can have hard conversations and you feel seen for the version of you that you value. Because I know, like, when I go into a hairdresser, they're like, oh, this is how your hair has to be. And I'm like, I'm not bold enough for that. I'm not brave enough for that. I get that that looks best on my face, but that's not who I am. So, too, with therapy, and that just requires a lot of legwork. Asking your friends who they go to, researching people online, finding modalities. I would be looking for people. Because my lens is trauma-informed, I'd be looking for people with EMDR or somatosensory training or attachment-focused training, anything that's like trauma-informed, I would sit with. So therapy is one way. Another way is to like go to a bookstore. This is my bibliophile preference, but go to a bookstore and just pick a book that interests you. Like go to the fiction or the nonfiction section and just start gathering the titles. Maybe it's the library. I'm actually a huge fan of the library for this type of thing read the stuff that interests you, about you, about your development, and just see if you can start gathering more information. The third piece of this is that it takes time. Like we're talking of a lifetime of learning how to show up one way, and sometimes it's a lifetime of learning how else you might show up. And so to pay attention to how urgent this feels to you and ask yourself, What's my next immediate right step? Like cares told me to find a therapist, to ask about preferences, to read books that interest me. But what do I know is the thing that I need to start exploring the stuff that I feel I need to explore. Because your answer could be hiking in the woods. It could be planting a garden. It could be calling your best friend more often. It could be finally pursuing aesthetic school. Like profoundly, you are the expert on you. So if you're listening to me right now, And you heard Seagull question and you're like, how do I know inside what's happening? And it's a really interesting question. Can you just ask yourself, what about that question was interesting to me? And if an answer doesn't come to you, can you practice sitting with that? Can you make a minute every day and just ask, what about that was interesting? And just allow answers to come. We're so used to like
1: actively problem solving. I like that a lot. And I also like the underlying message that there is not one way, right? I mean, there are lots and lots of ways in which we can get to know ourselves and understand what we need. And I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in all of the blog articles, all of the podcasts, all of the TV, everything that is trying to educate you on this is how you do X, right? The number one way, the only way, like this is the secret. There is no secret. There is no one way. What works for one person may work differently. (laughs) Mindy's brain is blown. Yeah. What? That was secret, though. I just have to manifest. I know. But sometimes those, those things will resonate, right? And then we're like, oh, my God, that's the way. But it's not the only way. It might work for you. And so, therefore, that blog article worked well. Or it might work for you, but at what cost? Just bringing it back to what you were saying earlier in the episode and making sure that you're asking yourself that question. When you were talking about the hairdresser and being like, Well, what if you want to go in and you're like, yeah, I can own that. I can totally own that. But I hate maintenance. Like, I don't have time to blow dry my hair. I don't have time for every two months haircuts. So as much as I would own that, at what cost? I cannot do that maintenance that will actually stress me out more. And so therefore, no. (laughs) It's so
0: interesting you say that because the striver tendency is to find the solution before examining the problem. And so what that means is like, okay, I have anxiety. I'm going to go read every book, every blog post, every article. I'm going to like deep dive. And what we need to do is go, okay. so I think I'm struggling in this moment with anxiety. What could I need? And it's not an either or. That's the paradox. We want to inform ourselves and do the research, but we have to try it on. We have to try it on and we have to be willing to be flexible. The goal of high performance is not to be operating at the top level all the time. High performers do not go 110% all the time. They move from like, I'm 110%, I'm engaged because this is urgent and important and significant and time sensitive to I have time, I'm gonna learn and I'm going to engage thoughtfully and create to I'm disengaged, I'm recovering, I'm resting. And we move between these states and strivers know the like research hard power through muscle. What we are less familiar with is like this softer, let's just see how things unfold, like an attentive patience. Putting it away for five minutes, for 10 minutes, for a weekend. Like the number of strivers I talk to that are like, yeah, I just need a month off, or like I'm just quitting because the answer is I only can do it this way, or absolutely not at all. We need a dimmer switch here. There's like a million gajillion options between there.
1: And the work we're talking about is making space inside to just ask the questions. I think it's really important and worth repeating is this idea that when you're ever in a situation where it's either I can do this or I drastically have to do this, reminding ourselves of the various ways in the middle of that that are actually possible. Because I definitely fall into that. I'm like, oh, I mean, if I can't. Work out on the Peloton at least 30 minutes at this level every single day, then I can't do it at all. And that's not true. You can still be a very healthy person and do 20 minutes a day, twice a week. Like that's better than nothing. And so it is such an important thing to remind ourselves. We should flag it anytime we're thinking in that extreme. Not only that, I
0: love that you had that. My practice around that is whenever I feel like I have an either or. I tell myself I can't make a decision until I can Mm. think of at least like five more. So I'm like, I can't make a decision. I have to walk away from it. I usually, when I'm feeling like that, I go for a walk. For me, movement is like one of the best ways. And I tell myself, do not think about this on the walk. Don't think about it because you're in a stress response where your mind is like, I don't have access in my brain to the millions of options. So I'm obviously not in a position where I can make a choice. If you only see two choices, it means you are not in a position to choose between them. And you just need to take a step back. And think about
1: something totally different. I love that so much. So what is your lawyer origin story?
0: So this is where my privileges show up in full force because I became a lawyer because I wanted to ensure that I had financial stability and career stability. When you become a lawyer, everyone says you can do anything with a degree. But the reality is you will always be a lawyer. And the decision of what are you going to be when you grow up is answered. And I, at that time, didn't feel equipped to answer it in a more nuanced
1: way. And so I became a lawyer because it felt safe and easy. And what made you choose mental health as the alternative to being a lawyer? That's the far more compelling question.
0: It felt less like a singular choice and more the result of a million choices I made after I started going to law school. When I was in law school, There were parts of it I really liked, and there were other parts where I found myself quite off. Like, it's not that I wasn't happy. I just felt off. And when I started practicing, it became quite clear that there was more that I wasn't doing for myself than what I was. And what I mean by that is I would be on calls with like a a director, and I would hear their spouse in the background, like, yelling about something. And my heart was like, wait, what's going on with you and your partner? But my mouth was going, so about these resolutions. (laughs) And that dissonance became really interesting to me, where for the first time in practice, I noticed it wasn't that I didn't want to do X, which had been my profound feeling in law school. Not that, not that, not that. It started to be like, oh, but what about that? And then I got curious and started coaching. And then I was coaching people as I was a securities lawyer, which was like a hilarious Just note to self, having a side hustle while you're a securities lawyer is like, oh, it's just like a situation. Uh, Thank you to all (laughs) my clients that worked with me during that time for the midnight calls. And from there, I very quickly came to realize that I was most myself when I was sitting across from someone hearing their story and getting to witness it. And so my decisions moved me closer and closer to that and landed me in psychotherapy.
1: What a great story. And it actually is a great connection to one of our conversations that we had before the interview, which was understanding the narrative is therapeutic. Can you just explain that a little bit more for our listeners?
0: Sure. There are ways that we engage with ourselves all the time. There's the world happening around us. There's our emotional experience of it. And then underneath it is the story we tell ourselves about how those first two levels are impacting us, what it means about us, and how we show up. And I feel fundamentally that those stories not only come from us, but they come from our developmental experiences, our society, our passive and active caregivers and mentors in our lives, our cultures, our communities. And the work we do with one another is about healing those stories, really engaging deeply with ourselves and others with dignity, with our full humanity, to understand that not only do we all make sense, but we can still be accountable in our lives. And so seeing with compassion, curiosity, and connection, how we make sense fundamentally, and then how we're responding at the other levels as a way to engage with sort of story is how I think about the work I do all the time.
1: Excellent. So now we're going to go into some of our rapid fire questions before we wrap up. So first and foremost, what does leadership in law mean to you?
0: So leadership in law to me means addressing the stories we tell ourselves about work and why it's important and how we serve. In particular, that means showing up with compassion, connection and curiosity,
1: not only for other people, but also for ourselves. If there was one thing that you could change about the legal profession, what would it be? So I have a problem with the word diversity
0: because it assumes diverse from whom. diverse from whom. And I learned that from Reshma Manakem. The thing I would change is having a wide variety of people with different experience and intersections at the very top across all industry sectors.
1: What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work you do?
0: Oh, that the purpose of it is to make you a better worker. It gets in this hamster wheel of like, well, if I work with Kara, I'm going to like solve myself and just be like the best worker I can be. Whereas the reality is, if you work with Kara, you'll see that you're not broken. You don't need solving. And the life that you'll lead after that will be a function of what makes you, you, however that looks in your professional career.
1: What is a piece of practical advice that you can give to our listeners? Jump to question.
0: This is for you and for other people. When someone gives you a statement, be curious. Like, oh, what a rough commute to work today. Oh, what made it tough? How was your vacation? Good. What made it good? Like jump to question. As you're engaging with people, make it a habit to be more curious about them and also more curious about yourself. So if you wake up in the morning, you're like, I didn't have enough sleep. Instead of, oh, I didn't, I'm, this day is going to be awful. Be like, huh, what would have been enough? Or how many days in a row have I felt this way? Can you jump to question inside before evaluation, judgment, statement? Like it's okay to have a pause because for a while you don't have a question. So someone will say something to you and you'll be like, hey, how are you? And they'll say good. And you're you're like, <laughs> so you just have to be like, hold on, I have a question about that. But it just left my brain. Oh yeah, what made it good? We're fine. What does fine mean to you? We all start our conversations with how are you? But like we don't answer genuinely. We all have, a parent in the background that's trying to FaceTime us or a dog that's sick or a child that needs attention or a mortgage that needs to be paid or a rent that needs to be handled. Like life is happening all around. We don't show up as work as only our worker self. And when we treat each other like we do, work can't get done.
1: Like we will just burn out. And so I genuinely do care. What do you say to somebody that is let's say, going into meetings and really wants to get to that agenda and doesn't want to spend the time being like, how was your day? What are you grateful for? They'll tell you not because they don't care, but because like they actually need to keep it going so that they can get to X, Y, Z. Like, what is something you can say to that as a piece of advice? Yes.
0: So what I completely empathize, I remember when I was a lawyer, I would walk in and one of the partners I worked with all the time just loved the light chit chat just like simmered in light, Chichen. And I'd be sitting across from her being like, I want to call them at 5.30. and we get to our agenda? So I would tell them two things. uh, What I completely understand. And two, do not confuse like being productive with producing things. Do not confuse checking items off your agenda and your list as the same as getting projects done and moving them forward. And you just get to be more transparent. So you could start a meeting with like, hey, I want to know how you are really. And also we have these eight things. So I'm gonna ask you, how are you really? And if there's something more significant happening with that person, probably shouldn't be moving on to the eight agenda items anyways, because they're not gonna be doing a good job at them. And if you take the time to connect with them, you will allow yourself an opportunity to either differently allocate those resources and those tasks, or you will have connected and regulated them enough that they can do their job. And if you practice it often enough, People will get used to it and know you will have enough information that a check-in won't take half an hour. Like my regular check-ins are two words. I learned it from Brene Brown. Two adjectives. And if people need more time to talk, they they advance. See, like, I know we have this meeting with these agenda items. I'm derailing it. We need to talk about this that's happening for me. So if you're someone who feels like you legitimately don't have time, you need to rethink time and its relationship to producing outcomes.
1: That is excellent advice. Excellent. It's challenging. Uh, as as is all the work, right? All, all the meaningful work is challenging, but it's also so rewarding. Wonderful. So last question, what do you do for self-care?
0: Oh, my gosh. It's interesting because it, uh, even the word self-care, like, what do I do? It doesn't feel like self-care to me. This just feels like, what do I do to be neat? Mm. Like, I lift weights. I take a tech Shabbat every weekend where I put my phone in my closet. And anyone that meets me has to find me through my husband, which is a privilege. <laughs> it's a privilege and I had to set a lot of expectations around that, it's like a hilarious thing. Uh, those two, I would say, have been the most significant. I meditate. Um, that makes it sound like I do it every day. I have a currently a one day street going. I make sure when I, I think the thing like the actionable thing that that may be new for people to hear is When I feel really crunched and I feel like I'm going to have to work tonight, I'm going to have to work this weekend, I actually try my hardest to stay out of my calendar and say, let's see how this goes. Like, how important is this really? And when I come up against sort of the end of my day and I've had a break from work, then I revisit the question, do I have to work tonight? So Mm. the thing is, I like try not to get in a place where I am planning so hard that I have no space to be. Present and in the moment. And I trust myself to find the time because I have a different relationship with time where not every minute is accounted for, but that's a constant practice. That's a constant practice.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And I really just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. If anyone wanted to reach out, connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, thank you
0: for asking. If you do kara at the practice lab.org. email is the best way to do it. You can also follow me on at practice with Kara. I want to thank you for the space that you create and the time that you devote not just on air but off air to telling stories. Like if we think about that third level, there are very few spaces in our work world where we allow one another to be imperfect. And it's so important to understand and appreciate ourselves. And it's like a notion that we think of like in a passing superficial way, but you're allowing and creating and carving through hard work and effort and time, that space. So thank you for doing that and inviting me into it and inviting all of the listeners into it. It's profound work and it's meaningful work and I am so grateful to be a part of it.
1: to get the special offer. Check out Wellline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.